Podcraft.com. After leaving Vienna, and long before you come to Budapest, the Danube enters a region of singular loneliness and desolation, where its waters spread away on all sides regardless of a main channel, and the country becomes a swamp for miles upon miles, covered by a vast sea of low willow bushes. That was the opening few sentences of The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. And you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com. I am Chad Fife. And I'm Chris Lackey. And Chad, please explain to me why we're reading an Algernon Blackwood story. Well, Algernon Blackwood was a favorite writer of H.P. Lovecraft's. And this story, The Willows, was actually Lovecraft's favorite weird tale of all time. So I've heard. And uh, we've got a lot of information about how he felt on The Willows in both his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, as well as some personal letters that he wrote. I think that when we do our kind of post-game discussion, that might be the best time to bring our old pal Lovecraft in to talk about that stuff. Before we delve into the story, what do we know about this guy, Algernon Blackwood? He was born in London slash Kent in 1869. And I say London slash Kent because it was Kent at the time, but now it's London. Oh, okay. Because London kind of expanded and expanded and eventually became its own entity. But then he had this kind of a crazy adventure life where he moved to Canada for a while and was a dairy farmer. Mm-hmm. And then he went to New York City and he had all these crazy jobs. He operated a hotel, was a newspaper reporter. I, I read that he was a model for a while. Yes. And a journalist for the New York Times, private secretary, a businessman and a violin teacher. Wow. So he moved around a lot. And that was all before he was 40, because in his 30s, he moved back to England. Mm-hmm. That's when he kind of started writing supernatural horror stuff. And he wrote 14 novels, a bunch of children's books, a bunch of plays, which were produced but not published. And uh, he was into the supernatural. Like he was, I would say, a believer. Uh, He Mm -hmm. joined this thing called the Ghost Club, which was a paranormal investigation group. That's still around, isn't it? Yep. I think the Ghost Club is the longest running kind of supernatural investigation, paranormal organization in the world, as far as I know. Yeah, it started in 1862 and it's still Mm. going now. And guess what? They still haven't found any evidence that ghosts exist. (laughs) No, but they were doing a lot of clubbing. (laughs) Lots of clubbing. You know what they play at the ghost club. (laughs) And um, he was also a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, you had spoken about Arthur Mackin, who is Blackwood's contemporary, was yeah. involved in that stuff, and, and so, so so was Blackwood. He wrote a lot about thinking that there was something beyond our world, and there was mm-hmm. some things we couldn't sense, and, and he believed that there was this expanded universe that by kind of broadening your consciousness, you would be able to tap into that. And it's very right. kind of new agey sort of stuff, not mm-hmm. not very, not too dogmatic. I think it was just kind of... There's something more out there, and he tried these different things to see what he can find. Right. I think he's somewhere between total mysticism and and complete rationality. It's like, yes, there's supernatural in the sense that there are other natural things that we just can't perceive. Yeah. It's not like somebody put a curse on you and you become a werewolf. and No. And then you're the, you're the ghost of the werewolf terrorizes. You know, it's not, that's not the stuff that he believed in necessarily. More that uh, almost a from beyond or great god pan idea that there are other natural forces at work. Right. Sometimes we feel them, but we can't understand what they are, which is a lot of what the Willows is about. And that only if we could open our perception a little bit, we would be able to glimpse them. Yeah, exactly. He lived quite a long time. He didn't die until 1951. So he outlived Lovecraft, actually. And uh, he had mm-hmm. a, 
a stroke is what he finally died of. Well, he had a number of strokes. But he did uh, a, a number of like radio readings of his work. I mean, he was kind of a performer as well, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's one interesting thing about him, too, which is that he was never married. He never ever found any wife, but they said that he was a very fun person to be around. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if he was gay. That's possible. And a lot of people say, well, you know, what difference does it make? And me being a very mm-hmm. uh, liberal kind of guy, you know, it's like, of course, who cares if he was gay? It doesn't matter. It's like, well, no, it doesn't matter to me. But if you were living at the turn of the last century and were a gay person, mm-hmm. you had a, a much harder life to live. Right. You couldn't openly be gay. In fact, it was, I'm pretty sure, illegal in England and the United States at the time. So mm-hmm. you had this sort of feeling that either you would have to suppress or become part of a secret society where you could live the way that you wanted to live. Yeah. I think that informs, would inform a writer's writing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, it's sort of like with Lovecraft, where you had stories where the two protagonists were like two men who lived together kind of closely and shared everything. and. Mm-hmm. I um, mean, in here you have these guys who are really good friends. It's just the two of them, and they um, and there's some we'll, we'll we'll talk about it later. But there's some affectionate language between the two of them. So you know, you might think about that in terms of it's just a way to read the text. Is this uh, what's this relationship about, mm-hmm. and is it possibly of a sexual nature? But ultimately, it's not really what the story's about. Oh so no, God, no, I think it's right for you to mention it, sure. But whether you want to give put those kinds of lenses on the reader or not it's up to you yeah exactly i do it's the story stands as it does with that information or without it so don't don't worry about it <laughs> well well this story the willows is among one of you know blackwood is well known and quite revered as being a master of the supernatural tale or the weird tale which is what we cover here this is uh, his two best known stories are probably the wendigo and this one the willows right. this is a story that is very much about atmosphere it's a long story. <laughs> it would be kind of difficult to walk you through each shifting mood of the piece. I really think that this is one best read. Uh, our synopsis can't really do much service to right. what is essentially the um, creating atmosphere. So we're just going to talk bare bones plot here with a little bit of commentary. I have to be upfront with you here, Chad. Okay. Um, I don't like this story. Yeah, I was surprised at how strong your reaction was I, to I, it. it was, it's one of the hardest things I've ever read in my entire life. Wow. Where I... It, I would read a paragraph and then go, I didn't read that paragraph. And then uh-huh. I'd have to reread it. And then I'd go to the next paragraph, read it and then go, you know what? I, my mind was wandering again. I mm. doesn't appeal to me at all. It just didn't, it didn't wow. capture my imagination. It didn't, nothing. It's for me, it left me completely dead. <laughs> Keep that. And not in a good, not in a cool way. Like dead on oh, my soul is, is crushed. Just dead is sure. I'm, I'm bored out of my mind. Really did nothing for me, except when I heard okay. our reader, Lance Holt, giving it a read there in the beginning. <laughs> that was amazing. Well, see, now you start to get the feel of it. I actually like the story quite a bit. So it could have been perhaps that I've read the Wendigo before. I knew what I was in for as, in terms of, of language. And yeah. It's a very languorous text. You know, it takes some time to get through. But I enjoyed it. I read it in a couple settings. I read it late at night. And it had that night ocean kind of feel to me. I, I just Yeah, really... but see, that night ocean, I loved. I mean, well, I shouldn't shouldn't talk about because it's not that I'm against the weird tale. I'm just against this mm-hmm. weird tale. So no, no, exactly. I think we should discuss that more at the end. But I just want to be up front. If I'm <laughs> jumping on it, you know, people know Chris doesn't like this story. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Well, I'm here to defend it because I did like it. So that's good. Now, in the opening where we did hear our friend Lance Holt, we're so glad to have him back on the show. Uh, reading the first few sentences, we kind of set the scene. The Danube River, it's this long, beautiful river that cuts through Central Europe. Uh, cuts through all kinds of cities, both modern and ancient, huge tracts of wild ecologies. Mm-hmm. This is the turn of the century. And we've got these two explorers who are taking this canoe trip. They're buddies. 
our narrator guy, I think, is Canadian. I don't know why I think that. but I don't remember them saying he's Canadian, but the other guy is Swedish, or um, at least that's what the guy calls him, the Swede. Yeah. He calls, <laughs> he calls his buddy the Swede. Which is a cool nickname. And a large portion of the Danube, you know, it's in Romania. It's that part of old Europe that it's where the medieval evil lives, you know, the old oh, bad yeah. stuff. It kind of reminded me of Dracula. Sure. Bit. This is that strange, odd, old you know, Roma world that they're touring through. Have you ever been canoeing? No, uh, I mean, I've, uh, yeah, I have not for a long trip. I, yeah. When I was, I must've been 13 years old. Do you remember, did you ever go to camp Abe Lincoln? I wanted to go. I remember they would mail out the, um, Oh yeah. The brochures, but I was never, did you go? I did. I went to camp Abe Lincoln and off camp, there was this thing that you can do where you, you know, you had to call your parents and see if you were allowed to do it, where you got to leave camp for two days and go on a canoeing trip. And then we would canoe mm-hmm. down the Cedar River in Iowa. And mm-hmm. at, you know, at the end of the day, you would pull over and set up camp and, you know, cook food, do all this stuff. And I, I have to say it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. I still remember it quite vividly. And it just oh, blew my man. mind that you can just canoe down this river. And it was there wasn't any civilization when I was on this mm-hmm. canoeing trip. So even per, having the, a, <laughs> even having an experience in my life that was kind of similar to what these guys are doing, I felt nothing. Okay. See, I, I man, that sounds great. I wish I had taken a oh, canoe trip like that. Oh, it was so that. cool. Mostly it was just, you know, training in lakes and, and you know, little races and things like that. I, but I camped a lot, especially yeah. when I was a teenager. And so, I I mean, it did connect with me on that level. But now where they land in this canoe trip, though, is, is quite foreign to me. And, and it's it's quite alien to them as well. It's a very particular environment. It's almost swamp-like, right? It's a giant marsh. Right. It's where the Danube sort of uh, flattens out, where, where it sort of gets shallow at a point so that since it's shallow, all the water's got to go somewhere and it just sort of spreads out and becomes this swamp area. And there are these willow bushes everywhere. Yeah. So they're they're similar to the giant kind of willow trees with the beautiful hanging branches, but these are these never get tall enough to do that. So they're sort of I mean, it's a really kind of str- I had to look it up. Like mm-hmm. what these exactly look like. And I can see how they seem like almost these little Lovecraftian aliens with these long sensors coming out of them, you know? <laughs> these willows never attain to the dignity of trees. They have no rigid trunks. They remain humble bushes with rounded tops and soft outline, swaying on slender stems that answer to the least pressure of the wind, supple as grasses, and so continually shifting that they somehow give the impression that the entire plane is moving and alive. I thought that was a neat picture to kind of paint. Right away, this landscape is very interesting and, and mystic. But you, you still didn't know? Nope, you didn't care? Nothing. Okay. Well, we know from the text that the, these guys have just left Vienna. Uh, they've just gotten out of cities and civilizations. They've been traveling for quite some time. Do you know that Ultravox song? What Ultravox song? Vienna. Oh, no, I don't know it. Or maybe I do, but I didn't know that was the it name. It means nothing to me. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I do know that. So that's every time I read the first sentence, he says they were in Vienna, and that song just was in my head the whole time. Maybe that's why I didn't like this story. Yep, I think that's what it was. It was all <laughs> because of that earworm. Well, at first, it seems like they've come across this kind of land of magic, this completely surreal landscape. They, you don't get this menacing sense from it initially. It's just sort of a sense of awe yeah. at the strangeness of the landscape. And it's huge. It's a huge right. area. So, they, I mean, they're going to have to camp in it. It's in its it's nature. There is no civilization really in this this whole part of it. And they, they, it's beautiful. And I and I remember this when I went camping. I There was nothing. There was just trees and water. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. it was amazing. It's beautiful. And and that I understand. I can I, I 
I get that. I feel it. This is an even crazier experience because the landscape itself is, you know, mutating as they're there. The islands form and, and get pulled away by the current. It's very windy. Yes. It's almost as if the trees are moving position and, and things like that. And they have to camp in this place. And when they try to make a landing on a little sandy island, it's, it's very difficult. It's as if the landscape just wants to keep pushing them away. Yeah. The wind is bad. The river won't behave. And, and it's like the willow branches are actually grasping at them as they as they try to make landfall, but they finally are able to tie the canoe up on an island. That's when you get a little character on the relationship. The narrator says about the Swede. I lay by his side, happy and peaceful in the bath of the elements, water, wind, sand, and the great fire of the sun. Thinking of the long journey that lay behind us and of the great stretch before us to the Black Sea and how lucky I was to have such a delightful and charming traveling companion as my friend, the Swede. Uh, so to your earlier comment, I mean, you might see, you know, you might be able to read something into that. Although hmm. first time I read it, I didn't really. I just thought that's a really congenial relationship that they have. You know, this is just somebody he's adventured with a lot. But the only important thing in, in terms of how the story works is that they're old buddies and they've traveled together a lot and that they've been able to pretty much overcome the more conventional problems that you would have on a long canoeing trip. I think that's what they mostly have done. They've done lots of different waterways. This one, however, the, the Danube seems quite different to them. It's, the, you know, the river has like a different character than what they're used to. Sleepy at first, but later developing violent desires as it became conscious of its deep soul. It rolled like some huge fluid being through all the countries we had passed, holding our little craft on its mighty shoulders, playing roughly with us sometimes, and it always friendly and well-meaning, till at length we'd come inevitably to regard it as a great personage. And that is really the whole story is kind of just personifying nature in various different ways. Yeah. And here the story goes on at great length. It does. Uh, about the character of the river. Boy, does it. Uh, its origins, how it works as a sort of a great beast, you know. And I can see that this is probably where you first really fell off, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just I didn't care. I'm like, why are you making this reference? It doesn't. I mean, I've, I've been on rivers before. I've never felt that mm -hmm. way. And it didn't. You You would think that. Something like this would be, oh, yeah, I see the truth in it, the underlying feeling, because that's what a weird tale should be. It should be that feeling when I like Night Ocean, which for some reason that resonated with me, that felt real. It felt like an honest thing that had happened to me, even though it hadn't. This I just I'm like, what are you on about? For me, I, I just read it. I mean, I thought it was beautiful writing and mm. almost poetic, like um, the Carl Sandburg poem about Chicago or something. It was great because it had this. It was taking the character of this river and really pulling it out the way it was just this kind of lumbering great beast and and the nature of it. And I, I can see what you're saying. I just my expectation wasn't this is going to be terse, efficient writing. The whole idea is that we're creating mood and atmosphere. And yeah. I thought the way that, that all of this was personified really played into where we come to understand the natural world as this other organism that is sometimes friendly and sometimes hostile was an interesting setup for what is going to happen to them once they start camping. So, you know, I can I, I can see where you're coming from, though. The personification of something like this just doesn't feel right to me. It didn't ring true. And that's okay. That's it. That's all I can say. This does have an element of the traditional horror story, again, to, like Dracula, when they are about to plunge into the kind of heart of darkness here, the, the section of the river where the marshes are. Like a Hungarian officer warns them not to do it. Yeah. He says, hey, if you go that way, it's desolate, you know. You can starve to death exactly because there's not going to be any civilization for a long time. So if you guys don't know what you're doing, you will die. Yeah, but they go anyway. <laughs> they go anyway. Well, they say they know what they're doing. So 
Yeah, sure. And isn't that the idea? You know, you want to face some adversity on of these course. kinds of trips and see if you can best it. So they go, they make camp on that island. It's it's incredibly windy, not a hospitable landscape at all. When they set up camp, the island sort of has an indentation in the center of it. So they set up camp in the lower section of the island so that right. there's less wind and it kind of protects them from the wind a bit. The river is flowing so much that it's eroding parts of the island away. And that is kind of this ongoing bit of the story here. And there's a turn where at first the narrator finds this landscape very beautiful and otherworldly, and then he gets this curious feeling of disquietude or alarm slowly. It's it's like things are off. There's something not right here. And I remember feeling that way. You know, I grew up in front of this ravine that it was a huge gully behind my house right. that you could walk down into. And then if you followed it along, you were just in the woods suddenly and away from all of the houses and that sort of thing. And I spent most of my childhood going down there and just exploring. And some days it'd be a nice summer day. It felt like I'd be by myself and it'd be seven in the morning, you know, out in the middle of all these big patches of mushrooms. And you felt like you were supposed to be there. But then sometimes it would have this cold kind of feeling like go away, you know, the the nature didn't feel like it wanted you. I mean, I really remember that kind of specific feeling. Yeah, I don't. I don't. And I remember playing in the woods. The only time I remember being frightened of the woods was my friend Tim. He said we were out in these <laughs> woods over by his house and he said, we have to be careful because there are packs of wild dogs out here. Mm -hmm. And that freaked the crap out of me. Like I, I was like, what packs of, and I don't think there really was. And I think somebody mm -hmm. one of maybe some older cousin or something told him about that because we never saw any dogs or any evidence of dogs sure. out there, but still woods were fun. You had adventures, you climbed trees, you did all the stuff until then. Yeah. And it was like, Oh my God, there could be something out here that will kill me. The critters were mostly what, like raccoons and ground squirrels out there. I mean, it wasn't like a cougar was going to pop out of anywhere. But, <laughs> but I, but most of the time it was a very inviting atmosphere. And then just every once in a while, it'd be especially around this time of year, like when it would start to get colder and the ground would get a little harder and it'd get windier. And I'd walk down there and I'd just feel like this isn't right. I could go home. And I, I don't know. This kind of touched on that for well, me. Obviously, it, it tapped upon something inside of you. Yes, not me. <laughs> <laughs> the willows are blowing in the wind and crowding in around their camp where they've set up that indentation and they yeah. give the narrator this terrible feeling like they're alive some essence emanated from them that besieged the heart a sense of awe awakened true but of awe touched somewhere by a vague terror their serried ranks growing everywhere darker about me as the shadows deepened moving furiously yet softly in the wind, woke in me the curious and unwelcome suggestion that we had trespassed here upon the borders of an alien world, a world where we were intruders, a world where we were not wanted or invited to remain, where we ran grave risks, perhaps. Well, after he's done surveying the terrible willows, uh, he goes back and sets up camp with the Swede and the feelings stick with him, but he doesn't say anything because he thinks the Swede is probably too practical to understand this. Yeah, he's he's a straight and narrow kind of guy and doesn't go in for that supernatural nonsense. And so he just keeps it to himself. So they're kind of like us in this situation right here where I'm connecting with it and feeling all the ama <laughs> and you just are like, I don't give a crap, which is funny because I think I'm the Swedish one. here. What? Right? I thought you were French. No, I'm... <laughs> Half German, half Swedish. There's no no French in there. Actually, I wouldn't mind if I had a nickname like the Swede. That'd be pretty cool. That would be pretty good. Even though I'm not Swedish at all. Yeah, because then people... Is he, oh, is he from Sweden? No. No. <laughs> because there'd be some cool story behind it. No, actually, he killed and ate a Swedish man. <laughs> as a baby. <laughs> Wait, as a baby I did this? Yeah. 
Oh my that's, God. Well, that, that's the turn, you know? People go, oh, okay, I guess I can process what that is. And then when you go, no, 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 he was an infant when that happened. Oh my God. <laughs> He's that tough. No, but see, I was actually going to tell them the truth that it was my critique of this story. That, that's why it was called the Swede. <laughs> you took it to some crazy place I wasn't going. I did. Bless you. The island is actually kind of shrinking slowly. The Swede says, look, get the canoe up here by the camp because if we wake up in the middle of the night, we might find we're already adrift. So yeah, exactly. we got to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Now, here's where the kind of signs of evil portent start coming into the story. The, right. the omen, so to speak. They're over by the edge of the river and they think they see something in it and it looks like a man's body. A black thing turning over and over in the foaming waves swept rapidly past. It kept disappearing and coming up to the surface again. It was about 20 feet from the shore, and just as it was opposite to where we stood, it lurched round and looked straight at us. We saw its eyes reflecting the sunset and gleaming an odd yellow as the body turned over. Then it gave a swift, gulping plunge and dived out of sight in a flash. It was an otter. Right, they... They both laugh. Yeah. Oh, it's an odd. <laughs> and and so they move on with their day, although they're kind of both unsettled by it. They gather up driftwood for camp. And then this is the second strange thing. They see a man in a boat yeah. in the distance, or at least they think it's a man in a boat. And since they're in this unpeopled, desolate place, it's really odd that anybody would even be out here. It's super windy, so they can't hear. He's trying to say something to them. He apparently was looking across in our direction. But the distance was too great and the light too uncertain for us to make out very plainly what he was about. It seemed to me that he was gesticulating and making signs at us. His voice came across the water to us, shouting something furiously, but the wind drowned it so that no single word was audible. There was something curious about the whole appearance, man, boat, signs, voice, that made an impression on me out of all proportion to its cause. He's crossing himself, I cried. Look, he's making the sign of the cross. I like the Swede says, uh, ah, the Hungarians believe in all sorts of rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this guy, they kind of just see where he goes and he sort of just goes down the river a bit and they lose sight of him and that's it. They don't see any more of him. He He doesn't show up. And in this weather, the Swede says he probably thought we were ghosts and we freaked him out. So he was doing the sign of the cross (laughs) and stuff. I liked this part when he sa- the narrator says, if they had enough imagination, I laughed loudly. I remember trying to make as much noise as I could. They might well people a place like this with the old gods of antiquity. I like that, you know, he's trying. they're both making a lot of noise and trying to laugh and be jovial because they're scared shitless. Something about it really disturbs them. Right. And it's again, it's again that Dracula thing. Somebody trying to warn them off and, and help them. If he's even there. Well, they both saw him, so he would have had to been there. Unless he's a ghost of some kind. Whatever. <laughs> they mentioned, too, in this point that it's... That this area was probably peopled by the Romans back in the day, and they had their Roman gods that they worshipped. And this kind of touches on the great god Pan that we were talking about, too, where that's sort of the source of the mythology for these things, is that Roman ancient pagan cross-section. There was some different uh, discussion going on back and forth about that Christianity Today article Mm -hmm. about Mackin and Lovecraft, where folks are saying, yeah, I mean... The gods of antiquity are far more horrifying than the Judeo-Christian gods because they were fickle and there wasn't necessarily one side that was good and one side that was bad. Oh, no. Absolutely. Now, an interesting discussion going on there. Now, we can skip ahead a bit here. Basically, the narrator and the Swede keep the fire burning for a while after dinner, talking about things that don't have anything to do with where they are so they can kind of get their minds off of it. Yeah. Putting off the fact that they have to go to bed. I mean, anybody who is a little scared of the animal noises in the night 
when you're camping, it's familiar with this sensation. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you don't really want to settle down because then suddenly everybody has to get quiet. And there's that moment, especially if you're, you know, these guys are sharing a tent, but it's an odd feeling, especially when you're in a couple of separate tents with people when everybody goes to bed because you are close enough to get together where you would hear each other. Mm-hmm. Everybody's quietly going to sleep and the world around you is making noise. It's pretty strange. Eventually, the narrator says, we got to hit the sack. He gets up and he walks off for a moment. And the feeling that they are completely unwanted in this environment hits him very hard. And in fact, he almost loses his balance when a piece of the island bank he's standing on. Gives way. Yeah. And then we end the chapter with a jump scare, actually. He grabs some firewood and he turns to go back and boom, the Swede is just standing there. Uh, says, you know, hey, you shouldn't be out here. Let's get back to camp. And it seems like the Swede's being practical, but really he was just scared. So he went looking for his buddy. And man, that's the end of the first chapter. I guess we can't. I was hoping to get through the first two in this show. Yeah, we're not doing a good job of moving fast on this. I mean, we moved pretty fast. Of the 50 pages I've got here, we got through 15. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. In the next chapter, things get a lot more sinister. The environment actually not only gives them a feeling that it doesn't want them there, but takes actual action. In it physically goes after them. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's not that. I, I maybe we'll talk about this as we approach the end of it, and maybe I'll have a better understanding of why this story mm. doesn't work for me. But I still don't know what's wrong. There's got to be something wrong with me. Everybody loves this story. No. Lovecraft loves it. Joshi loves it. Why don't I love no, it? No, no, I don't no, understand. No. Maybe I'm being too nice about it. I completely identify with your. I mean, like I say, I read it in a couple of settings. The first time I started, I was like. Oh man, this is long. <laughs> I don't, I, I, is, is it going to be all like this first section? So I get what you're saying. And then for whatever reason, the next time I was just in the right mood for it and started really enjoying it. And in fact, when I, when it takes this very menacing turn in the second chapter, that's when it really gripped me. So, yeah. but I, but I hear, I hear where you're coming from and hopefully people don't write in and get all mad at you. <laughs> Cause that's entirely possible. I'm sure they will. Well, Hey, if people want to get mad at me about something, uh, I, totally hate harry potter so there you go <laughs> yeah i know hate, I do hate too. get mad at, oh you hate harry potter as well uh, i mean hate's a strong word I, i'll tell you this there's just it's all just derivative and boring to me i mean i don't really get it exactly why it's so popular that said anything that gets people reading oh that's such a cop-out fiver it's not a cop-out when i was a young adult and i read <laughs> well you know there's a book called the house the clock and its walls that i loved when i was that age and it's very similar to harry potter in fact, when people started talking about Harry Potter, um, I thought it was kind of a ripoff. The first book I read because everybody was reading it, and I just kind of wanted to know. And I understood why it was popular for a young adult. It was a good read. I got through it pretty quick. That's fine. But I have grown people, adults, reading these things like that's the best thing that they've ever read in their whole life. And I'm like, where where have you been? Like, what are you doing reading this stuff? This is These are really kids' books. They really are. And yeah. I'm going to now I'm now I'm sure I'm making some people angry out there because I know everybody loves Harry Potter. I'm the odd man out on this one. And that's cool. You know, why uh, I did this Indiecade Awards show a, a few weeks ago. Oh, right. Yeah. Or I guess it was like a month in October. Yeah, it was a pretty fun. fun event. Actually, I came representing the podcast. I don't think I ever talked about that. But Indiecade is in a, a festival. It's kind of like the Sundance of independent games. And they were doing it in Culver City. And they had this um, awards show for all of the game designers and creators in Santa Monica. It was hosted by Felicia Day. Felicia and, Day. And they, That's right. They got the people that presented the categories were from all sorts of different game related industries. So there were people mm-hmm. there. You know, there was like a roller derby girl there. I was presenting in the audio category. There was a Quidditch player there. This was a UCLA student who was on the Quidditch team at the uh, university. <laughs> how does that work? <laughs> she tried to explain it to me all night. And I just kept coming back to him. I'm like, right, but you can't fly. Like you, the, the broom. Are you telling me that you guys are all running around on a field with brooms between your legs? Because then I kind of want to go. <laughs> 
<laughs> that I want to see. But this is a thing. And I and it's not just at UCLA. I mean, I think this is a, a worldwide sport. Like there are people all over the world that have these Quidditch. So it's a very meaningful uh, set of books. I'm not into it. If they're a college student, then they were probably kids when that they were at the right age when that, those books came out. Yeah, that's probably right. But I'll tell you this, too, just to play devil's advocate, because I uh-huh. completely feel the same way as you do about Harry Potter. But there are a lot of people who would say, are you seriously as, you know, a couple of guys pushing 40 still talking about H.P. Lovecraft? Isn't that what you read when you're like listening to death metal in high school? <laughs> you know what I mean? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> like I hear a uh, uh, Patton Oswalt, like, talking about how, yeah, yeah, that's when I was going through that Lovecraft phase where I was totally alienated and felt like I was exploring these big ideas. But it's like people grow grow out of it and continue on to other types of, of literature. And we are kind of arrested in that sense. I'm saying that's something that some people might have a perspective. Of. Yeah, yeah, I could I could see that. But that's a wrong perspective. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I agree. With that's you. wrong. And and yeah, just for me, Harry Potter, watered down derivative stuff. Yeah. Remember the worst witch? Remember that? Same thing. Came out long before Harry mm-hmm. Potter did. Books of Magic for crying out loud. Neil Gaiman's uh, Books of Magic. Have you if you read that stuff? It's pretty much like an adult version. I mean, not. I mean, he's a kid who's an orphan and he's got round glasses yeah. and he's got an owl and he discovers he's got magic powers. But it's way cooler than Harry Potter yeah. by leaps and bounds. I'm like, what? What? Huh? Why is everybody into this? This is what I'll say. In general, if something that you've written is derivative of some other writer's work or something like that, it's usually going to be a piece of crap. End of that. Let's move on. Now, we just finished this book, Deadbeats. <laughs> it's very Lovecraftian. <laughs> no, but uh, we should oh. we should tie up the show. And we're going to get back to more Willows and continue this uh, discussion. Um, it's actually kind of fun when we disagree on a story. So I'm looking forward to, yeah. to continuing this. But um, Chris, you're going to be at Thought Bubble this Thought month. Thought Bubble, yes. It's going to be the weekend of the 17th and 18th of November. So it's coming up very quickly. Uh, I'll be there all weekend. It's, in the book, it says I'm only going to be there on Saturday. Wrong. All weekend, I'll be there. So please come by yes. the table. Um, I'm one of the names that you need to get. There's like some sort of scavenger signature hunt. I'm one of the names. Okay. So if you come get me, I'll sign your thing and then you could get a prize or get into a raffle. I don't know exactly how it works. And yeah. you can get deadbeats you will be in your hands you will actually get a copy of deadbeats before chad byfer will get a copy of Deadbeats. that's correct <laughs> if you buy it there you will know what that physical book is like before i see it i can't wait yeah i want to thank this week's reader lance holt again doing a fabulous job yeah taking care of the story that everyone loves but me i don't think that's true i think i've read on the forum some people completely agree with you on really this stuff, so Oh, that's amazing. Okay, great. Good. Well, I'm glad that I'm not alone. I feel much better about things. Stick to your guns. Don't let us uh, beat that opinion out of you. I think it's going to happen. We'll talk more about that next week. All right. uh, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you are listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.